0: Today's reading is all of Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they say, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took forty shekels of silver from them, in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work, We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for these people. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures and we ask that you would come and speak to us now in the individual and specific ways that we need to hear your voice. We pray that by your spirit, you would come and do that and help me as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to speak with you today about how to turn battles into blessings, how to turn battles into blessings. Now, we've been uh, in an amazing preaching series looking at the book of Nehemiah. Um, Rupert's teaching has been so helpful for me personally, and uh, it's, we've basically been looking at Nehemiah being called by God to uh, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And overcoming the different obstacles that he faces as he seeks to do what God has called him to do. And, he, and in this reading that we come to um, this morning, we see kind of three things coming at him in double track. Firstly, you've got this situation of the whole rebuilding project and the money and the resources and the food that that takes, which takes people away from the farms where they would have been able to get grain and food. Then you've got this situation of a famine to make it even worse, and then you've got injustice in God's community. So the older and and sort of richer members of the community are exploiting the same people, Um, and the tragedy of that really, given these are people who were released from slavery in Exodus, and now they're exploiting each other because of the financial and economic difficulties of God's people at that time. So that's the situation we find ourselves as we land in chapter five. And Nehemiah wants to kind of teach us, really, I think, about how to turn those kind of battles into blessings. And if there's one thing I know about the Christian life, it's that battles and blessings are absolutely guaranteed. And that battles and blessings often come to us, don't know if you've found this, battles and blessings often come to us in double track at the same time. Jesus said, didn't he, in this world, you will have trouble. You can absolutely bank on that. But he goes on to say, I have overcome the world. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Reminds me of a few years ago. Many of you will have had worse trials uh, than me. Uh, But a few years ago, I met um, and uh, married Nikki. Uh, not on the same day. And uh, that was a huge blessing, uh, a real time of change and growth for me personally. And uh, we moved up to Durham and I started training to be a vicar and it was this incredible time of growth and change and fruitfulness. Uh, But then uh, Nikki was diagnosed very sadly with some uh, chronic health conditions uh, that made her life really difficult. And it was a real season of battle and blessing for both of us. Or it makes me think of my dad a couple of weeks ago. He, uh, uh, the Lord opened a door for him to get a job that just felt right in that moment and in that season after a lot of prayer. And literally on the Saturday before he was due to start that job, uh, people broke into their house uh, while they were sleeping upstairs and stole loads of stuff uh, down in the house. And again, it was just battle and blessing right alongside each other in double track And I know that there'll be similar stories like this right across the Church of Jesus of of amazing blessings and breakthroughs right alongside fierce and unrelenting battles. Maybe you can relate to that. And of course, jesus the same thing happened to Jesus, didn't it? If you remember at Jesus' baptism, there's this incredible moment where the Holy Spirit comes down upon him and he hears the voice of the father saying, this is my son whom I love and whom I'm delighted with. But then what happens immediately after that? He is immediately sent into the wilderness to be tried and tested by the devil. It's battle and blessing in double track again. And maybe for some of you, this is your take-home point. You can switch off now for the rest of the sermon that the challenges you're facing and not simply the regular ups and downs of life. For some of you, it may be. I'm not, you know, super paranoid about these things. But for some of you, uh, the difficulties you're facing are part of the spiritual warfare that God calls us to. And to be aware of that. As the Apostle Peter puts it, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's possible for a trial or a battle to feel strange, isn't it? To find it surprising and challenging. But in the book of Nehemiah, he helps us, I think, to not do that, to not be surprised when the spiritual battle comes my way and our way as a church. So how do we actually turn battles into blessings? That's hardly an automatic process, is it? Well, Nehemiah chapter five teaches ultimately that one of the crucial ways we can do it is by having a consistent and godly character. It's so important. A consistent and godly character has the power by the Holy Spirit to change seemingly impossible situations. And you can just see that shot through this chapter. And the kicker verse to me is in verse 15 to 16 when Nehemiah is confronted with this corruption uh, uh, and the sin of his people, and he says, But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. There's a saying, uh, As goes the leader, so goes the organization, or As goes the leader, so goes the church, or, As goes the leader, so goes the charity. And because of a, a Nehemiah's uh, consistent and godly character, he has the amazing influence to turn a really quite serious situation uh, of corruption into an unexpected blessing. And the nobles and the people in power actually listen to Nehemiah because, I think, of his moral integrity, because of his character. And so I'll say more about how Nehemiah changes that situation in a moment, but let's pause and just uh, think for a moment how important consistent and godly character is before we move on. Because when we die, people will not remember us for how successful we were. When we die, people will not remember us for how much money we had. Uh, they won't, we won't be remembered for how much power we had or what grades our children got. The truth is that what people will remember when we die is our character. Character trumps absolutely everything else in leadership and in life. And I think that actually this is incredibly good news for some of you. Because some of you are tempted to think, I suspect, if you can relate to this, that, well, to be an inspirational leader, I need to be a forceful and strong personality. Or to be, you know, an inspirational leader, I need to be able to give charismatic and rousing speeches. And while these things may well be good, and if you've got those gifts, that's great, but actually character has been consistently shown to inspire and to help people so much more than that. And the Bible echoes that, doesn't it? The Bain Research Group surveyed 2,000 employees about leadership that inspires them, and they came out with 33 different traits uh, that inspire, but things that stood out to me were things like humility and consistency and that these things can actually inspire every bit as much as some of the more flashy things like, uh, like, you know, inspiring speeches or bold vision casting. So don't write yourself off. Godly and consistent character is profoundly inspirational and for some of you, I think you're way more inspirational than perhaps you give yourself credit for. You have more influence than you perhaps give yourself credit for. And maybe, you know, the Lord is calling you to take more ownership of the specific leadership gifts that God has given you and to step into his authority more. Because it's easy to think, isn't it? Well, I'm not, you know, rich or I'm not a chief executive or I'm not like this or that person, but leadership takes many different shapes but godly character is the most important and the most effective both in the sight of God and in the secular world and godly character has been shown right throughout scripture to have this power in God's hands to turn battles into blessings if you look at the book of job the book of job Everything goes wrong for him, doesn't it? He loses his family, he loses his money, he loses his health. And what enabled him to hang on to God when everything else was giving way beneath his feet? Well, it tells us immediately in verse one of that book, and you can go and read it. It says it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't. It doesn't cite his money or his natural abilities, not his passion, enthusiasm. It was because he was verse in verse one, blameless and upright uses that phrase quite a lot in the book of Job, blameless and upright. It was Job's character that became this kind of life raft on which he could rest when everything else was stripped away from him. And so Job survived what he experienced because, in many respects, of character. So this is super important if we want to live well, isn't it? And what we find in Nehemiah chapter 5 is, Is his godly character miraculously turning these complex uh, battles into blessings? And uh, in the context of this reading, he's begun this huge building project, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He's got a famine, and then he's got this issue of exploitation between different members. Of God's family. And in verse 5 it says this, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Now that must have been an incredibly tough situation for Nehemiah to deal with, to see that the opposition he was facing was not just from the outside, from a godless foreign power, but that the attack now actually comes from within God's people, within God's camp. And it's no different today with the church, that Satan does not just come at us with trials and temptations from the world, though he certainly does do that, but he also comes to us trying to sow seeds of disunity, injustice corruption and mistreatment, to bring disunity into God's house. And you can see that in Nehemiah. There's trials from outside in the world and trials from within as well. And when Nehemiah sees that the relationships between God's people are not right, we see his amazing godly character in three ways. And it's that he, um, he speaks out about it, he acts out, and he gives out. So firstly, he speaks out. Starting at verse six, um, it says, "'When I heard their outcry and these charges, "'I was very angry. "'I pondered them in my mind "'and accused the nobles and officials. "'I told them, "'You are charging your own people interest. "'So I called together a large meeting to deal with them "'and said, as far as possible, "'we have bought back our fellow Jews "'who were sold to the Gentiles, "'and now you are selling your own people "'only for them to be sold back to us.' They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. You can hear the irony in what he's saying, can't you? These are, these are God's people who were released from slavery, from you know, in the Exodus by God's uh, grace. They literally used to be enslaved people, and now they are treating each other in the same way. And what I love about this uh, particular chapter is that Nehemiah has this incredible balance and a balance that I want to submit to you that we need to have. On the one hand, he's passionately and resolutely committed to building God's kingdom. That's clear from verse 16. He's focused on it. He's resolved on it. But as part of that building process, he's equally passionate for holiness among God's people, for right relationships between God's people. So this isn't kind of a growth at any cost or growth at any price. It must be combined with an equal passion for holiness in God's house. And only then is God's kingdom going to be built. But Nehemiah gets the balance right, in effect, and says it's growth and holiness, it's justification and sanctification, it's free grace. And costly grace. And I'd submit to you it's a balance that God wants us to have and to maintain going forward. It's growth in numbers and growth in depth that we're striving for. And we need both, I think, to stay healthy as a church. So Nehemiah kind of names the situation for what it is. And where I wonder, though, is God calling you to be bolder, In standing for biblical truth. A good clue, I think, is to ask yourself, what makes you feel a Holy Spirit given anger? Now, allowing yourself to feel anger can sometimes be the beginning of significant change. Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I was very angry. Now, not all anger is wrong, is it? And yet, there's a careful balance to be had here because a lot of anger in this world is sinful and is wrong and is just often just bolshiness but you know James chapter 1 verse 20 is it puts a sort of ring fence around this doesn't it when he says human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires and yet it's equally true isn't it that some anger can be given by God to drive positive change if you look at Jesus in the temple, uh, driving out uh, the market sellers from the temple with a whip. Can you imagine that? Because of how angry and grieved he was about the corruption he saw. Uh, This week, it was the two-year anniversary of uh, the murder of George Floyd. And uh, like many of you, I imagine I was, you know, angered and grieved as I remembered uh, that. And just by the evil of racism, and also of the complicity that the church has historically had in racism in the past and the work that still needs to be done to make sure that that beautiful racial diversity that the Bible promises in the new creation is reflected here and now in the body of Christ and in my own interactions and friendships. Another thing that might make you feel angry to have a holy anger is the to see the decline in the church in the West. You know, that can feel, can't it, like walking around the kind of rubble of a building that was once beautiful and glorious. But that is something that can cause a Holy Spirit-inspired anger to call on God to change the spiritual temperature of the nation. For me, it was before I got ordained, I remember going and hearing a sermon that wasn't remotely faithful to Scripture and didn't preach the Gospel, and it grieved me, and I was upset about it. And as I spoke with people and discerned what the Lord was doing, there was the seeds of a leadership calling in my life that God was birthing through the anger I felt. But where I wonder is that holy anger burning within you. Not worldly anger, that's something totally different that the Bible distinguishes, but a holy anger. Pay attention to that and test it with people you trust, maybe in your home groups, and see what God does with the conversation. And it may be that there's an exciting calling there to look into. So step one of turning battles into blessings is to speak out and name the situation for what it is. And Nehemiah does that, doesn't he? Step two of turning battles into blessings is to act out or to take concrete action. So in verse 9, he says, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Or in verse 11, give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. And then amazingly, they say, we will give it back and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as they say, as you say. The good news is that it's never too late to change and it's never too late to make a situation right. Maybe for you, the battle that you're facing is in your family and the divisions that seem impossible to heal. And maybe the Lord is saying to us, well, humanly speaking, maybe it is impossible. But by my work in your life and in your character, you can lead by example and shine the light of Christ into your family. People sometimes say, don't they, oh, I'll apologise when they apologise. Or we think it anyway, even if we don't say it out loud. But friends, what if your apology and repentance is actually a thing that can change the atmosphere in your family, and in your, or in your marriage, or in your friendships. Now, I do want to be clear, I don't think that negates wrongdoing, genuine wrongdoing that's been done to you, but you can make a choice like Nehemiah and lead by example, and with humility, even when others refuse to acknowledge their role in the conflict or disagreement. And maybe that the situation for you is just plain injustice or immorality in your workplace and you've been silent about it, but maybe God is calling you and I to bring those practices into the light and to sensitively challenge them. Step two of turning battles into blessings is to act out, to take action. And as I heard someone put it recently, and I found this helpful, sometimes we are praying for clarity when what we really need is courage. Sometimes we are praying for clarity when what we really need is courage. There's plenty of things that the Bible is so clear about, isn't it? And what we actually need is courage to act on and speak on what we already know to be true. And when we pray, God, give me courage, that's a dangerous prayer to pray. It's an exciting prayer as well because God does answer prayers like that. If you ask God to give you courage and boldness, he will do it. And you will probably find yourself boldly doing what you thought you could never do in your own strength because God has given you courage. So we speak out, we act out, and finally, we give out. So in verse 14, Nehemiah says, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. So what Nehemiah is saying here is that as a governor, um, he could have used his power to get things like extra food and resources and money, but that he's consciously and consistently refused to do that And he tells us he did that because of fear for God, but also because he was aware of the burden that the people of God were already carrying. They were already being heavily taxed, and there was this famine. But Nehemiah went above and beyond in his generosity and stayed focused on what God had called him to do in building the wall in Jerusalem. And his generosity, his leading by example, is just so helpful to be reminded of, isn't it? So in verse 15 to 16, he says, But the early governors, the the ones preceding him, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. And so what did Nehemiah do when faced with these battles of scarce resources And division among the people and injustice. Well, starting at verse 15, again, it's that powerful line, isn't it? But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. Nehemiah's speaking out and acting out is matched by his giving out. And his integrity shines like a torch throughout this chapter. And then we see the nobles and the officials listening to him in verse 12 as he says, we will give it back. We won't demand anything more from them. How did Nehemiah turn this battle into such an unexpected blessing? I think it was just through the simple power of consistent and godly character. And if you listen to me and think, well, I'm not so sure how strong my integrity is actually, you know, I'm not sure how godly my character is. This is what I felt as I wrestled with the passage. You might say, I try my best, but, you know, I compromise a lot. You might say, I know I love Jesus, but sometimes I want to be liked. I want to be popular. Or you might say, you know, I, I agree that some people have this thing called, you know, godly character. But, and it's a beautiful thing to behold. But, you know, Matt, you don't understand what I've done or what I've been through or what I'm facing, that I'm too far gone for that to be a viable possibility for me. But friends, remember this, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. You are who God says you are. You can do what he says you can do. You can step into his anointing and his authority rather than your own And you can ask for his wisdom to face the battles that you're facing. A promise that I come back to so often these days is in James chapter 1 when he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. This is a promise that God gives. If you need wisdom for the battles in your life, this is a promise you can absolutely bank on. It will be given to you, just ask him. There is grace for you today to turn your battles into blessings. There is grace for you today to receive the courage to do what is right. There is grace for you today to take the next step with God because we know, don't we, in all things, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, that God works for the good of those who love him in all things, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and we ask that you would mould and shape our character by your spirit to be more like Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, for for that amazing truth that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation, that it's never too late to turn to you. And we ask that you would come and do exactly that, that you would turn the battles in our lives into blessings through the work that you're doing within us. In Jesus' name, amen.